restoration in lives. Uh, Jerry, many of you know, formerly served as a ranger in the United States Army, was serving with the battalion here at Fort Benning. And Bastian uh, shares some amazing testimony that will move our hearts and relate to our children the dedication and sacrifices they make. It is also a wonderful story of God's grace and of God's ability to, uh, to rescue. And I'm glad the children are here and can hear this wonderful testimony. So uh, you give uh, Jerry a wonderful testimony.
we've had uh, mechanical problems, and we lost all power. And then it seemed like the power came back on, and we started to spit 360 degrees. And the guy back, one of the crew members of the Chinook, there's six of them, one of the engineers yells out, hold on. So then I yell out, hold on. And I lay back onto the ground of the helicopter. We're not sitting in seats. We typically sit on the floor. And I just lay back. And as I lay back, the only thing that I could think of was calling on Christ. And just repeating, Jesus, 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 as we started spinning. Uh, next slide, please. <coughs> That's what the helicopter looked like. We hit the ground. Um, a Chinook is about 19 feet tall. I'll show you in a couple other pictures. That Chinook is crushed so low, like if I stood next to it, I would be taller than it. Um, the pilots they're showing you the cockpit session. Go ahead and go to the next slide, please. This is another view. Um, it was 13 degrees outside. It was nighttime and it was snow. Um, next slide, please. That's the cockpit session. That's where the pilots were. That engine crushed the pilots. The only thing left intact on the pilots were their hands on the joystick. Next slide. That's just another angle. Next slide. I was inside that. Um, there was a fire on the back side. Um, when, I, when we hit the ground, the only, I, I tried to get up and I felt my injuries. I had multiple pelvic fractures I didn't know. Um, but when I tried to get up, I just, it felt like everything in my hips was shattered. So I started to just crawl and pull myself. There was equipment and bodies um, all over the place. People, some people were in pain, some people were crying out in pain. Um, I knew that there was a fire and it was like survival instinct kicked in and I needed to get out of there because I didn't know if it was going to explode after uh, the impact. So as I crawled out, okay, keep it here. This is the car the passenger here. This is kind of where I was sitting a little farther up into the picture um, and I crawled out towards the back and um, at that point there was a fire and there's a machine gun that sits back there and that thing was cooking off rounds so I pushed myself once and I crawled out over to um, the two other guys that basically were there they had crawled out two guys in my team they called out, and I actually called out to help to them, to, to try to help assist me. And it was too much pain for them, too much pain for me, so I told them to go back and pull security, and I would crawl to them. So as I crawled to them, um, we were laying there on the ground, and one of my guys was like, what are we going to do? So I said, well, we're going to pray. So that time, I prayed and asked God specifically in prayer, pleading, that someone would hear me on my radio and that we would get rescued and pulled out of there. Because we crashed in a Taliban hotbed. This was a known area where Taliban uh, 
open roads and um, conduct operations. So the thing about this crash, though, when we crashed, the other two helicopters didn't know. They knew that there was a problem, but they didn't know we crashed. They just lost communication. Okay. The weather was so bad, they couldn't just turn around and look for us because it was nighttime and it was snowing. The third thing that was wrong was there's a beacon on the Chinook that signals where the helicopter is in a situation like this. Well, the beacon was broken. So we were stranded. There's a fire. We're all injured in enemy territory. All the equipment that we had, all the high-speed uh, weapons, useless. They were all broken. So the power of prayer. Um, about two hours go by, I had a radio that I used to, um, you know, during missions, but this radio only reaches so far. Uh, the frequencies, you know, are programmed, pre-programmed in it, and that's all I had. So I started to go through every channel that I had programmed in there to try to reach anybody. Nobody answered. Two hours go by. I hear somebody talking on the radio, and it's a it's an F-15 pilot flying by, and I, at the right time, he's in the right area. I was on the right channel, and keep in mind, I went through every channel that I had programmed. At that point, I was making up frequencies. I was just plugging in numbers, trying anything, and I heard him talking. So I told him a frequency, a, a grid to where we were located. He relayed that and sent out a combat search and rescue to come pick us up. Wow. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, there's a guy next to me. This is in Iraq. This is a guy next to me well, to, my, to my right in the picture to your left. He's standing. His name's Scott Moss. He has a traumatic brain injury. The guy, and he's still suffering, the guy to my left standing, uh, his name's Patrick Carter. He's the guy who I was praying with. He's a Christian now. Um, next slide, please. The guy in the front with the green shirt taking a selfie, that's the pilot of the F-15. He's a Christian. Got in touch with him. He seeked me out. Uh, found me on Facebook. He's a Christian. Uh, he's the pilot of the F-15. The guy in the middle, Chuck Isaacson, he's the only survivor in that Chinook. Uh, the guy on the far right, he's one of the PJs that survived. <clears throat> and um, I think that's the, end, the last picture. So that's just, uh, there's a lot of details, a lot of things that I would love to share with Ken, but that scripture just really came to life. And just closing, I know that God rescued me from physical danger, but there's also a spiritual danger that if I had died, I know that I would be with the Lord, and He would have rescued me from the punishment of my sins that, that I deserve. So that scripture still holds true. Even if, you know, I had died in that crash, I could still say Psalm 91 um, is, is real in my life. Thank
sustained horrific injuries. And that's a miracle in itself. He was, of course, initially uh, treated in Afghanistan. Then you went to the hospital in Germany. And then from Germany, you ended up at Walter Reed. Uh, you were at Walter Reed a good long while. Uh, when he returned here, he was in a wheelchair. Typically in a Lord's Supper service with all the other elements, I just share a brief devotional and that's what I'll do right now. Uh, just plan to take about five to seven minutes because you know we think a very important element of celebrating the Lord's Supper is also to provide opportunity for the church family to minister to one another. So when we close a Lord's Supper, and I'm saying this for the sake of our guests, we always provide an opportunity for our people actually to get up and move about and to pray for one another express appreciation to one another. So uh, in just a moment, I will provide that opportunity. And so you need to look around and uh, who, who is uh, near you uh, that may could use a word of encouragement or uh, you might like to share a word of appreciation, someone who's meant uh, a lot uh, to you. But let me just take about seven minutes and then we'll move into that time before we close the service. And I simply want to share a question and a challenge that someone shared with me uh, that powerfully impacted and changed uh, my life. And I, and I plan in future Lord's Supper services, especially going into the new year, to come back to this truth and even emphasize it uh, further. If you are a believer, Christ is present in you. Romans 8 9 tells us, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not what? Belong to him. Colossians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 27 says, Christ is what? In you, the hope of glory. But here's the question to you that are believers. Yes, Christ is present in your life. But is he preeminent in your life? We read in Colossians 1 verse 20 that Christ is to have preeminence, to be first place in everything. Sadly, I believe we would all have to admit that many Christians are not giving Christ preeminence in their lives. James calls them double-minded Christians who are spiritually unstable because their hearts are divided. 
not wholly surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews identifies them as Christians who have slowly, what, drifted from Christ, and as a result have become spiritually dull and not able to stomach strong biblical teaching, the meat of God's Word. They become stunted in their spiritual growth, uh, always needing to be cared for, but never contributing anything to others. And like a small child, they're always creating messes in the family of God that so many others have to clean up behind them. Uh, Peter calls them unfruitful and useless, having no impact for the cause of Christ. Paul calls them Christians who have compromised their faith, violated their consciences, and as a result have become shipwrecked in their faith. John calls them Christians who have become too open-minded, have become too tolerant of the world and the culture in which we live, and often even compromise their morality, bringing reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. And worst of all are those John calls lukewarm in their relationship with Christ. Not hot, not cold, just tepid. Lukewarm in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They may be faithful in church attendance, may be very faithful in a lot of activities in the church. They outwardly may appear to be the real deal, but in reality, they have no heart passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are living wasted lives. And the root problem with every one of those Christians I just described is that they are not giving Jesus preeminence in their lives. So the question this morning is, in this brief devotional, have you given Jesus preeminence in your life? Is Jesus truly first place in everything? Now, we need to answer another question for this to really mean anything. In very, very practical terms, what does it mean for Christ to have preeminence in your life? And I'm going to share three truths. Again, we're going to return to these after the first of the year and some future Lord's Supper services. But I'm going to share three truths. I pray God will burn into your heart like He burned into my heart. Not that I have arrived, but when I was challenged with this, I'm telling you, it had one of the greatest impacts that, of, of anything that has ever happened in my life. I pray we will yield to these tr three truths. We will surrender to them, give our lives to them. Uh, I pray these three truths will capture our hearts from which there will be no escape. I pray that these three truths will be lived out in our lives going forward from this day by the grace, by the empowerment of God in our lives that we might demonstrate that He does have preeminence and that He is worthy to have that preeminence. And let me just share these verses with you. Again, we'll come back to them in future messages. But Luke chapter 14, let me read for you verses 25, 26, and 27. Because from these verses, I think we can extract in very practical terms what it means to give Christ preeminence in our lives. Now, great multitudes went with Him. 
So there's this huge crowd following Jesus as he's making his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified for the sins of mankind. And he says, and he turned and he said this to them. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then let me add verse 33, he says, well, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And let me add one other verse, going back to Luke chapter 9, verse 62, but Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Three phrases that I believe captures what it means to give preeminence to Jesus in your heart that's seen in these verses. No rival, no refusal, and no retreat. There it is. Jesus is saying, for me to have preeminence in your life, there can be no rival that I am to be your first and greatest love, not your father, not your mother, not your marriage partner, not your children. And he's not saying that you should literally hate them. You understand that. He's saying in comparison, yes, but you're to love me supremely above all others. I think of Paul's incredible statement that captures this. In Philippians 3, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Why? In view. In view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And I think most of you know the literal Greek translation is, I count them as manure compared to Jesus. So that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that, for which also was laid hold of me by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, I have no rival in my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my one goal. He is my supreme objective, my greatest passion. He dictates the entire direction of my life as I desire to walk with Him and please Him, to submit to His authority, to serve His agenda, to seek His approval. And in comparison to Jesus, yes, everything else is as rubbish, as dumb. So no rival, but also no refusal. 
Jesus said, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Now much time is gone, but what does it mean to take up your cross? It's talking about embracing the will of God, obeying God, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the suffering, regardless of the shame. That's what it means. It means that I eternally say no to self and yes to Christ. No to self and yes to Christ. That I will never refuse Him. And that's why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? And not do the things that I tell you. What hypocrisy, he says. If I am Lord, there can be no refusal. It's always yes to me. So no no rival, no refusal, but no retreat. We've been given a mission. And that mission is to take the gospel to the world. To take it locally, to take it globally. And he says, if I'm to be preeminent in your life, you must join me in that mission. I have called you to be a fisher of men. I have called you to join me, to pray, to go, to give, that a lost world might be reached for the Lord Jesus Christ, and there can be no retreat. I don't care what disappointment you face, what discouragement you face, what suffering, what adversity, what persecution. No retreat. The mission is the first thing. Just like these soldiers know, it's the mission, completing the mission, regardless the cost, regardless the sacrifice. Jesus did not mince words. He's this wonderful gift, but because He is this wonderful gift, He's worthy of that preeminence. And God is not going to shame His Son by allowing a superficial commitment to Jesus. Because Jesus is truly alone, alone, worthy in your life to have no rival, for you never to refuse Him, and for you to never retreat. Amen? So I pray, going forward, especially as we go into the new year, that these truths will be burned into our hearts. They'll sort of become the model of our church going forward. No rival to Jesus. No refusal. No retreat. God, here we are. We're yours, and we follow you. By your grace, by your empowerment, I can do nothing apart from him but praise him. I can do all things, what? Through him, as his strength is infused in my life. So right now, in a few remaining minutes, I want to give you the opportunity Uh, to encourage one another, express your love to one another. We're not closing the service now. I pray you'll remain until we do end the service. And we'll do that just in about three or four minutes because you can continue this ministering time after we formally dismiss. But again, look around. Who can you encourage? Who can you express appreciation to? You may just want to remain seated right where you are. Reflect on these three truths. No rival, no refusal, no retreat. Asking God to work in your life where he would get to the place where truly there he would be preeminent. And there would be no rival in your heart to him. No refusal. No retreat. And uh, just continue to praise him for his wonderful gift of salvation. Because simple bottom line, folks, this requires a response on our part. We praise God for who he is, what he did for us. But we must reciprocate to his love. And we reciprocate to his love by giving him what preeminence. By showing him that he's worthy of that. So please, uh, right now, I'll remain at the front to greet anyone that might have a public decision, profession of faith, 
desiring to unite with the church family. But let me invite you right now, please feel free to stand, minister to one another as we typically do at the conclusion of a Lord's Supper service. And then in about three or four minutes, we'll close the service. And even after we close, you can continue to love on one another, encourage and pray for one another.